Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 9th day of March, 2008. I'd like to welcome back all my old listeners to the Corbett Report and welcome any new listeners who may have followed some of the links from our recent videos or articles which are making the rounds on the internet. I'd like to remind all my listeners that you can find all of the documentation backing up each of the statements made in today's podcast from my website, www.corbettreport.com. And now, without further ado, it's time for the real news. Our first story this week comes from ABC News, March 7th, 2008. Headline, Report, Thousands of test subjects not notified about dangers. Thousands of U.S. citizens who participated in human experimentation for the military may have been exposed to harmful chemical and biological substances. In some cases, healthy adults, psychiatric patients, and prison inmates were used in experiments that often included intentional exposure to blister and nerve agents. A GAO report adds that many of the test subjects have not been notified by the government about their potential exposure. The report cites tests conducted by the Defense Department going back to World War II, most of which were a part of its Project 112 test program, while others were conducted as separate efforts. I really don't understand it, said Davi D'Agostino, Director of Defense and Management at GAO. It would be easy to say DOD has a lot of priorities right now, but they've also got a lot of problems, and we think this is very important. Our second real news story this week comes from The Telegraph, March 7, 2008. Headline, All UK Citizens in ID Database by 2017. All British citizens will have their fingerprints and photographs registered on a national ID database within 10 years under plans outlined by the government. Millions in sensitive jobs, including teachers, carers, and health workers, will be among the first to be entered onto the identity register. In a bid to kickstart the project, the world's biggest, foreign nationals working in Britain will begin to be issued with cards from November. Starting next year, the first British citizens will be enrolled, beginning with some airport staff, power station employees, and people working on the London Olympic site. Our third story this week comes from the Daily Mail, March 6, 2008. Headline, Parents Fury After Police Blast Schoolgirls as Young as 13 with CS Gas to Break Up School Fight. Parents hit out at police for putting their children's lives in danger after they blasted 15 schoolgirls with CS Gas Spray near a busy road. A complaint has been made against Avon and Somerset Constabulary by one of the parents after the riot gas temporarily blinded her daughter outside the school in Bristol. Musnilya Babatunji said the loss of vision made her 15-year-old daughter Jibwiz stagger into a busy road following the incident outside Whitefield Fish Ponds Community School. The older girl and her friend, Sasha Wood, 13, say they went to help a classmate who was fighting with another girl. 
Police said the officer concerned was single-handedly dealing with a melee involving 15 people, and that gas was the best option. Welcome to episode 36 of the Corbett Report, entitled The Republic of Lakota. As you may surmise from such a title, today's episode is indeed about the indigenous people of the Americas, and some exciting developments in their ongoing quest to achieve true freedom under the despotic regime that has taken hold of America, and indeed many of the industrialized nations around the world. Indeed, today's episode is about some exciting news that is taking place in the Lakota Sioux area in the Midwestern United States. And given the type of material the Corbett Report usually deals in, that of an encroaching police state fostered by a phony war on terror and amplified by media-propounded hoaxes like the global warming fraud or the peak oil fraud, it is indeed genuinely uplifting to be able to present some exciting news about a spontaneous grassroots movement that is taking place right in the belly of the beast, so to speak, and striking blows for personal freedom and liberty. But unfortunately, before we can get to that exciting and uplifting news, I think it's important to put this in its historical context. And that context is, of course, the long and shameful history of the treatment of the European settlers towards the Native American people that they encountered when they first came to the, quote, New World, unquote. It is, of course, a long, complex, and often tragic history, and some of the main details of that history are already well known, including, of course, the myth propounded for so long in the American school system that Christopher Columbus discovered America, despite the fact there were people already living there, and the eventual enshrinement of Christopher Columbus as some type of hero in American folklore, which is perhaps best symbolized by the celebration of the eponymous Columbus Day. And for an interesting analysis of that, I suggest you watch a short clip from the movie The Canary Effect, a documentary about the history of the Native Americans since the encounter with the Europeans. And you can find a link to the homepage of that documentary where you can find a clip about the Columbus myth from my homepage, CorbettReport.com, under the documentation for episode 36. Of course, many atrocities in the pursuit of the genocidal extermination of the Native Americans have been well documented in the historical records, such as, of course, the famous ploy by Lord Amherst to give the Native American tribes smallpox-infested blankets as a way of helping to exterminate them. But even though these atrocities are well known, the Native American has remained largely marginalized, shoved onto reservations and out of sight, out of mind of the general American public, most often associated with alcoholism and casinos. The plight of the Native American is still often neglected, even by those who campaign for human rights. Now, there are many serious issues to talk about today, and I hesitate to bring this clip up because it might distract from some of the more serious issues, but I think this is important information nonetheless, in that it gives some, something of an insight into the way that the general public treats the Native American issue in general. And the fact that this story, which comes from CNN from 2006, centers on the most famous American crime family, is not an entirely coincidental one. But I'll let my listeners cogitate on that for themselves. Let's listen to this clip, again a CNN news story that aired in mid-2006. Now a story about one of America's most prestigious universities, a well-known family, and a legendary American Indian leader. It's a story about secrets and bones and maybe about grave robbery. It's an 85-year-old riddle, and the solution may be hidden in the windowless headquarters of a mysterious society. The Secretive Skull and Bone Society was founded at Yale University in 1832, and its members have included the elite of the elite. President Bush is a third-generation bonesman. He follows his father, former President Bush, and his grandfather, former Senator Prescott Bush. That's where the story really gets interesting. Many years ago, it's said Prescott Bush and other bonesmen dug up the grave of the legendary Apache leader Geronimo in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Historian Mark Wartman is the author of a new book about Yale men who served in the Air Corps during World War I. 
While he was doing his research, he uncovered a 1918 letter from a bonesman that suggests the Geronimo story is more than just legend. I found it and said, this is amazing. This is quite stunning to see this. It was laid out so clearly in straightforward language, saying we've got uh, Geronimo's skull, femurs, and uh, horse tack, and we've brought it back to the uh, tomb, as they call it, in New Haven. Located on the Yale campus, the tomb is the windowless sanctum of skull and bones. Although the rituals conducted inside are shrouded in secrecy, it's said that to this very day, new members must kiss a skull during initiation rites. Are they kissing the skull of Geronimo? I think that at the time that they took it, they certainly believed that they had his skull, his femurs. Um, whether that's true or not, uh, nobody at this point can know for sure until they bring it back out and uh, let it be tested. Geronimo's great-grandson, Harlan Geronimo, wants answers. I'm willing to volunteer and uh, have my DNA take in and um, the DNA from the skull and uh, do a genetic makeup. Geronimo says he's hurt by the possibility his famous ancestor's bones were stolen and could possibly be a part of student rituals. So now the great-grandson of Geronimo is asking for help from the grandson of Prescott Bush. Oh, I like to see, you know, uh, President Bush get involved in this issue and help return, you know, the remains that was taken and also uh, the artifacts that was taken back to the uh, family, you know, and uh, have a proper burial, you know, um, and uh, restore the dignity back to my great-grandfather. So, of course, that whitewash report tries to spin it so that the important issue is not that the grandfather of the current president, the father of the previous president, was an actual grave robber who believed he was stealing the skull and bones of a very important historical personage through the act of grave robbery. No, no, no. The important thing is whether or not it's really Geronimo's skull. Because, of course, we can't be sure that it was actually Geronimo's grave that they dug up and stole those bones from. Although, of course, they believed it was Geronimo's skull. The unbelievable twisting that they have to do in order to make that story sound like just a Nancy Drew detective tale or some type of children's cartoon yarn displays the self-evident fraud that that report is. The important point is that the president's grandfather is a grave robber, and he belongs to the same secretive society that dug up Geronimo's skull and uses it in their initiation ceremony, which, again, the report attempts to downplay, but if you go online, you can see that well-known conspiracist news magazine, 60 Minutes, with an interview and accompanying footage of some of the initiation rites which were secretly taped by someone who was on the Yale campus recently. And the initiation rites are disturbing and disgusting enough in themselves. But I'll leave you to dig into that yourself by going to my homepage and looking in the documentation. But again, I think that report gives a sense of how the Native American situation is not taken as a serious political issue, but some type of oddball political sideshow or something to be dredged out when there is a slow news day. For a very important piece of Native American history, we have to turn, as usual, to an independent filmmaker's documentary. And a clip of this documentary is available online through YouTube. What this documentary shows is that the Bush family hatred of the Native Americans does not extend merely to the act of desecrating Geronimo's grave, which, by the way, in the intervening years since his body was dug up, has had a concrete slab and a pyramid of stones capped by an eagle placed on top of it. But of course, I'm sure that symbology isn't important and shouldn't be looked into. But the gift of a further atrocity by the Bush crime family to the Native Americans came in the form of the Family Planning Services and Population Research Act of 1970, which was passed in large part due to the efforts of a young George H.W. Bush, and legalized the use of federal funds for the sterilization of minorities and the poor. Yes, indeed, we see things tending back towards the elite obsession with eugenics, which has been well documented in previous episodes of the Corbett Report, and which in the 1970s under the Nixon administration took the form of population reduction. 
fostering such gems as the Kissinger NSSM 200 document, which advocated the use of food as a weapon, or the Rockefeller Population Commission, in which Richard Nixon appointed John D. Rockefeller III, the admitted head of the former Eugenics Society, to study the problem of overpopulation and what the U.S. government should do about it. Well, in the Family Planning Act of 1970, again, George H.W. Bush helped to legalize the use of federal funds for the sterilization of members of marginalized groups in society, and unsurprisingly, the Native Americans bore the brunt of that onslaught. Let's listen to a clip of that documentary, which features Senator James Aberesk and others reminiscing about the reports which revealed the extent of the forced involuntary sterilization of 42% of Native American women of childbearing age. <clears throat> Somebody came to me and said there's some sterilization going on of Indian women. Uh, I publicized it, I had hearings on it. Can you remember what the findings were? The findings were that there was indeed sterilization going on. Based on the documents that uh, were secured by virtue of the illegal acts of the American Indian Movement, women of all rated nations warned that organization, analyzed the documents, and they concluded on the basis of the evidence they had that it was about 42% of the overall female population of childbearing age were prevented from birth, not only involuntarily, but in a number of cases, unwittingly, they were never even informed. It used to be routine practice to um, try to sterilize Indian women when they, after they had a very small number of children. Again, it's difficult to underestimate the importance of this historical fact on the Native American population, and yet the program hardly rates a mention in the historical literature. Many other such historical atrocities exist, but now let's turn our attention to one which is perhaps quite well known among the general population, the massacre at Wounded Knee. This is a massacre that was inflicted on the Lakota Sioux by the United States 7th Cavalry at Wounded Knee Creek in South Dakota. The 7th Cavalry opened fire on a crowd of peaceful Lakota Sioux who were disarming in front of the 7th Cavalry under a flag of truce. This incident killed hundreds of innocent men, women, and children. And this incident has become a rallying point in the history of the Lakota Sioux. Let's listen to a clip from a documentary talking about the lead-up to and the events of that horrible day in 1890. By the late 1880s, a message of hope spread across the Great Plains. It was called the Ghost Dance, a dance to restore the past when Indian nations were free. danced without rest, on and on. Occasionally someone thoroughly exhausted and dizzy fell unconscious into the center and lay there dead. The visions ended the same way, like a chorus describing a great encampment of all the Lakotas who had ever died, where there was no sorrow, but only joy, where relatives thronged out with happy laughter. The people went on and on and could not stop. And so I suppose the authorities did think they were crazy. But they weren't. They were only terribly unhappy. Driven off their lands, Indian nations were confined to desolate reservations, dependent on corrupt government agencies for food and supplies. The people were desperate from starvation. We felt that we were mocked in our misery. We held our dying children and felt their little bodies tremble as their souls went out and left only a dead weight in our hands. Red Cloud, Oglala. The ghost dance hurt no one, but as it spread, white settlers panicked. 
the United States government outlawed the dance. The white men were frightened and called for soldiers. We had begged for life, and the white men thought we wanted theirs. On a mild day just after Christmas of 1890, a band of Hokwoju Sioux, under their leader Bigfoot, left the Cheyenne River Agency in South Dakota, heading for a meeting at Pine Ridge with Oglala leader Red Cloud. Traveling with Bigfoot were 106 men and 252 women and children. Among them was a boy, Dewey Beard, who would later tell his children and grandchildren about that day. Grandpa Dewey Beard being the last survivor, I would listen to what he had to say. In a way, it was sad, and yet it's uh, beautiful because it's bringing back history. One thing that he would say is that had the soldiers, had the government left them alone, in time they would have uh, looked outside and seen how things were changing, and the change would come about from within the bands. Bigfoot's band was intercepted by the 7th Cavalry. The officer in charge found Bigfoot wrapped in heavy blankets, dying from pneumonia in the back of a wagon. Bigfoot was ordered to make camp along Wounded Knee Creek. In the morning, his people would be stripped of their weapons and escorted to Pine Ridge. Bigfoot made assurances of his peaceful intentions and the band made camp. He's a peaceful man. He's, he's always say that, uh, think about the elderly, think about the children and the woman. And uh, don't start the trouble. Morning broke after a sleepless night surrounded by soldiers. Hokwoju witnesses would later recall what happened next. Bigfoot, who was sick, came up with a flag of truce tied to a stick, Dewey Beard. As soldiers trained their guns on them, Bigfoot and his men brought forth all their weapons, placing them near the white flag of truce Bigfoot had planted in front of his lodge. The soldiers then searched their tents and wagons for arms, even confiscating cooking and sewing tools. As Bigfoot's people gathered around the flag of truce outside his tent, four powerful Hotchkiss rapid-repeating guns were mounted above the camp. I noticed that they were erecting cannons up here, also hauling up quite a lot of ammunition for it. They encircled us like a band of sheep. I could see that there was commotion amongst the soldiers, and I saw on looking back they had their guns in position ready to fire. Thomas Tibbles, a white reporter who followed the troops to Wounded Knee, recorded what happened next. Suddenly I heard a single shot from the direction of the troops. Then three or, or four, a few more, and immediately a volley. At once came a general rattle of rifle firing, then the Hotchkiss guns. An awful noise was heard, and I was paralyzed for a time. Then my head cleared, and I saw nearly all the people on the ground, bleeding. My father, my mother, my grandmother, my older brother, and my younger brother were all killed. And he saw his mother walking toward him. She was walking along, and she was shot. Dewey, she said, keep walking, my son. She said, keep going. She said, I'm going to die. And that was the last time he saw his mother. The women, as they were fleeing with their babies, were killed together, shot right through. And after most of them had been killed, a cry was made that all those not killed or wounded should come forth 
and they would be safe. Little boys came out of their places of refuge, and as soon as they came in sight, a number of soldiers surrounded them and butchered them there. American Horse, Oglala. The firing continued for an hour or two, wherever a soldier saw a sign of life. With the sunset, the weather turned intensely cold. About seven o'clock that night, the 7th Cavalry brought in the long train of dead and wounded soldiers and Indians from Wounded Knee. Forty-nine wounded Sioux women and children had been piled into a few old wagons. The wounded Indian women and children were eventually carried into an agency church where they lay in silence on the floor beneath a pulpit decorated with a Christmas banner reading, Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men. Nothing I have seen in my whole life ever affected or depressed or haunted me like the scenes I saw that night in that church. One unwounded old woman held a baby on her lap. I handed a cup of water to the old woman, telling her, give it to the child who grabbed it as if parched with thirst. As she swallowed it hurriedly, I saw it gush right out again. A blood-stained stream through a hole in her neck. Heartsick, I went to find the surgeon. For a moment, he stood there near the door, looking over the mass of suffering and dying women and children. How oh, the silence. The silence they kept was so complete, it was oppressive. And then to my amazement, I saw that the surgeon, who I knew had served in the Civil War, attending the wounded from wilderness to Appomattox, he began to grow pale. This is the first time I've seen a lot of women and children shot to pieces, he said, and I can't stand it. Thomas Tibbles, reporter. I mentioned earlier that this massacre has been an historical rallying point for the Lakota Sioux, and indeed, that's a point I'd like to reiterate. That can be seen from the American Indian Movement, which was founded in 1968 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The American Indian Movement, or AIM, gained notoriety in the early 1970s for its armed seizure of public facilities, including the Mayflower II on Thanksgiving Day of 1970, which marked the 350th anniversary of the Pilgrims' landing at Plymouth Rock and also Mount Rushmore and the BIA office at Washington, D.C., among other public facilities which the group infiltrated and seized, or at least demonstrated in. But without question, its most important stand was taken at Wounded Knee in 1973. In the Wounded Knee incident, approximately 146 Lakota Sioux and Native Americans in the American Indian Movement seized control of the town of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation in protest of a number of issues, including opposition to the president of the Pine Ridge Reservation, Dick Wilson, who had been accused of mishandling tribal funds, abusing his authority, and using brute force for political means. It was an intense 71-day standoff between the armed occupiers of Wounded Knee and the U.S. government, represented by federal marshals, FBI agents, and armored vehicles which included numerous firefights and resulted in the death of Frank Clearwater and Loris Lamont, two of the occupiers, and the paralyzation of U.S. Marshal Lloyd Grimm. An agreement was reached on the 68th day of the siege, and on the 71st day, the government retook control of the village. The site of Wounded Knee was chosen as the point of organization, obviously for an historical reason. So let's listen to one of the occupiers, Bill Means, Talk about the decision that was made to occupy Wounded Knee, and some of the build-up to the siege, which was known about by the authorities in advance, who had already taken the step of planting FBI agents in the Pine Ridge Reservation. Staying up at the Indian boarding school, the Pine Ridge boarding school, uh, our Oglala Community School's official name, they were staying in the dormitories up there. So different workers in the community 
started coming out to Calico and telling us. I thought, wow, man, this is kind of like Vietnam, man. All of a sudden we got the public, the people that's working, giving us information about the enemy, you know, what they're doing and what to watch out for. I says, you know, this is, this is getting, this is building, you know, something's going to happen. I was thinking in my own mind. And uh, sure enough, you know, the chiefs came back across the road and they said, well, we're going to go to Wounded Knee because at Wounded Knee we won't be alone because of what happened in 1890 when our people were massacred by the 7th Cavalry, over 300 men, women, and children. 80% was women and children. Uh, you started thinking of that, what that meant in the history of our people. And the chance to uh, be there with those spirits. And what uh, Alan Moose Camp had said, <clears throat> all those things growing through your mind, man, you, you're ready to run through a wall or kind of get that spirit like when I was back in Vietnam, that survival thing where you're not going to let nobody affect your survival. The next thing is we got to get the mission, you know, what's the mission? Like when you start thinking in military terms, you know, because you're, you want to get something done and the police are there and the, the lights and the marshals got their bunkers. Uh, I'm thinking to myself, these guys aren't soldiers, you know, they're police, but they're not soldiers. And sure enough, man, we decided to take off the chief said we're going to wounded knee because we won't be alone we'll have the spirits of our ancestors this long caravan man it was really dramatic because it was kind of coming down towards dark in the evening this is in february so that's fairly early february 27th 1973 we're going in and see we're north of Pine Ridge and there's just one highway, so we're going south into Pine Ridge to get to Wounded Knee. You got to go through Pine Ridge, so we got a caravan, maybe hundred cars or so, lights on, going over these little hills out in the plains. All the buildings in town are bunkers. The cops are running all over. They're coming. They're coming. There's a hunter. We come into Pine Ridge, and instead of surround the VIA building, we just make a turn and go out of town. It blew their minds. They didn't know where it was going. They didn't think about their history. They didn't think about that grave out there at Wounded Knee and what it meant in the history of our people. They were thinking about AIM and how they could embarrass us or, you know, stop us cold or initiate some kind of a law enforcement, uh, should we say like, a, you know, when they suspend your rights, you know, that uh, martial law type of situation. But instead, we went right through town. So we got to Wounded Knee. No one was there. There's a trading post there. And so we went up to the church. And then some people said, well, if we're going to... And then we made a decision, well, we're going to stay here until we said, let's have a meeting. And it was kind of, at first we weren't thinking of staying there, like I said, and the chiefs came, and that was another thing that was so powerful spiritually. Because the elderly people, the men, the women, the children, they were all part of this caravan. So when we got to Wounded Knee, we went up to the church. You know, one of the greatest enemies of Indian people. And we ended up meeting in the basement of this church. And it was there that the elders, you know, they said, we're here and wounded knee. And the tribal government, they're not really our enemy. They're our people. Our enemy is the United States government. And if we're going to stay here at wounded knee, it's going to be half behalf of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. Because that's who is the real enemy is the United States. 
And if they keep us fighting each other, we'll never get anywhere. That's a very valuable lesson to have learnt, and one that those in the truth and freedom movements who spend their time ninnying about how many reptiles can dance on the head of a pin might do best to learn for themselves. But the historical line of continuity from Wounded Knee in 1890 leads through the 1973 Wounded Knee incident with the American Indian movement to today, and the exciting news that I mentioned at the beginning of today's podcast. Let's take a moment to consider one of the people who were involved in that armed seizure of Wounded Knee, Russell Means. Russell Means was, of course, one of the young men who agitated for action at Wounded Knee back in 1973. And he wrote an article about the siege for Rolling Stones back in 1998, which is available online from his website, russellmeans.com. In the years following Wounded Knee, Russell Means became a well-known activist among the American Indian community. Also an actor, musician, artist, politician, and the all-knowing IMDB assures us, previously an assistant golf pro, a ballroom dance instructor, a computer programmer, a systems management director, and an accountant. Certainly a man of many talents. Looking closer at his political career, Russell Means did indeed run for the Libertarian Party candidate for President of the United States in the 1988 presidential election. But he lost the vote for the Libertarian Party candidacy by one vote to Ron Paul, who went on to become the Libertarian Party candidate in 1988. Both men share similar political views, and I think regular listeners to the Corbett Report will know that I wholeheartedly endorse Ron Paul's run for president. What then is the exciting news regarding the Lakota Sioux that I mentioned at the beginning of today's podcast? Well, I'm embarrassed to admit that this happened on December 19th, 2007, and I've only just recently learned about it. But it comes from this AFP article, Descendants of Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse, Break Away from U.S. Quote, The Lakota Indians, who gave the world legendary warriors Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, have withdrawn from treaties with the United States, leaders said Wednesday. We are no longer citizens of the United States of America, and all those who live in the five-state area that encompasses our country are free to join us, longtime Indian rights activist Russell Means told a handful of reporters and a delegation from the Bolivian embassy gathered in a church in a rundown neighborhood of Washington for a news conference. A delegation of Lakota leaders delivered a message to the State Department on Monday announcing they were unilaterally withdrawing from treaties they signed with the federal government of the United States, some of them more than 150 years old. End quote. Yes, you have heard that correctly. The Lakota Sioux, or at least a certain section of them, headed by Russell Means and a few others, have declared that they secede from the United States of America, taking a large portion of five states with them. This is indeed incredible information, and the reason that I think it is so exciting is that when you listen to Russell Means talk about this idea, you understand quite quickly that this is a man with a political vision, and if his vision comes to fruition, we might indeed have our last best chance at freedom in an increasingly dictatorial world. Indeed, the speech that I heard Russell Means give on this subject, and which is available on YouTube, is truly inspiring in the way that most political speeches these days are not. Again, I don't want to prejudge you on the matter, but I am going to play the clip in its entirety. Without further ado, let's listen to Russell Means announcing the Republic of Lakota. I'm a Let me be a free man. When I said in my language, travel. hello, my relatives. Welcome free to trade where I choose. To the Republic of Lakota. Free to choose my own people. You know, on December 17th, we declared an act for myself that we were announcing withdrawing from the United States of America all our treaties and all of our agreements. Now, according to the Vienna Convention to the Law of Treaties, which the United States is a signatory to. In 1980, it went into worldwide effect with every country. And that is, you have to follow a protocol in order to withdraw from a treaty. 
one of the protocols is uh, lying, violations of human rights of all types. At any rate, in our portfolio that we presented to the State Department of the United States of America on December 17th, we listed an overview of our deprivation since entering into a treaty with the United States of America. Now, in our rights, we never gave up our sovereignty as Lakota, and neither did the United States of America ever claim that our sovereignty was extinguished. Consequently, we are still a nation as recognized by international law and by constitutional law of the United States of America. Article 6 of their constitution gives us a legal standing. Now, the, the, some of the statistics of our deprivation our adult males live less than 44 years of age. It's the lowest life expectancy in the world. Our women, 47 years of age. We have an infant mortality rate that is 200 times the national average. One out of every four Indian child born in the United States of America and among our nation, it's higher. But in America, one out of four is fostered or adopted out to a non-Indian family. It's a business for the drug companies and for the baby market and adoption agencies. We have lost in the last 50 years 50 million acres of land. Our water is continually being stolen without regard to us. Our unemployment rate in Lakota land is 73%. 73%. The gross national product that Indian lands in the United States given to, excuse me, our natural resources that, that the United States of America steals from us and our present land base in the United States which is only 50 million acres, or about um, 20, 20 million hectares. We put in $30 billion into the gross national product of the United States economy. In return, they steal $2 billion from the taxpayers of the United States and put that into all the different government agencies that cover American Indian affairs. Out of that two billion, 87% is taken up in administrative costs. So out of the two billion, we're left with 13% out of two billion. So, there you see why the deprivations of the American Indian are so, so horrendous. We have diseases now on the reservation that are no longer prevalent in the rest of the United States. Polio is back. Uh, tuberculosis is back. Uh, we have epidemics of every other kind of disease, especially cancer and diabetes and heart disease. Epidemic abuse of all types among ourselves because of our deprivation, our poverty, and our confinement. Yeah. Is is also epidemic, every kind of abuse you can imagine, because that's what we learned in the forced migration into the boarding schools, the government and Christian boarding schools of America, for over, for about 75 years. Our national dropout rate is over 45% from schools, the foreign schools were forced into. The relocation program, the United States of America operated for about 25 years, forcibly relocating Indian people from the reservation, has resulted into 70% of our people, 70% of Lakota are in a diaspora throughout America. The Indian people in America are refugees in our own country. And the reservation 
the reservation system. Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler wrote about that the United States of America has excellent policies of putting the unwanted and lesser human beings away and isolating them, and that would be a good reason for him to start labor camps for the unwanted gypsies, homosexuals, Poles, and Jewish people that he put into concentration camps. So he got his idea from the United States of America's Indian policies. Apartheid in South Africa, the 1964 Bantu Development Act, which institutionalized apartheid in South Africa, 1964, while in 1934, the United States passed the Indian Reorganization Act. Read them. They're almost identical. So that we were the role model. We, listen to that. The United States of America was a role model for apartheid South Africa. The West Bank and Palestine. That's pure Indian policy. Iraq, pure Indian policy. Need I go on? That's more than enough to withdraw from the treaties that the United States of America would have given them 155 years to live up to their own laws, to their constitution in the United States, and they failed miserably. And they just continue to steal from us and do... So many deprivations. You know what all those deprivations spell? Genocide. Extermination. My people are about to disappear. The fluent speakers of our language, average age, is 65 years. According to linguists, it's over. We can't lose our language. You know what that means? That means we lose our worldview, our way of life. That means we become like the Africans. I should say the black people in the United States of America because they're no longer Africans. We'll be walking around with brown skin. Oh, there goes an Indian. But we won't be in with God because that's where the Indian comes from. We won't be. We'll just be brown people lost in this, this thing they call America. We want our roots. We want the familiarity of Grandmother Earth. We want to know the clouds. We want to breathe clean air. We want clean water again. And the only way to do that is to become free. And we've done it. And you know what the biggest problem we have? The first problem? We've got a refugee problem. Americans want to come to the Republic of Lakota. These Americans are professionals, lawyers, some doctors, engineers from all types, computer engineers from all types, skilled workers, farmers. Even some one farmer wanted to donate his land to us. Another farmer wants to sell off his farm in, in the east, move to our country, and bring on his animals. But that's our problem. Our second problem is fighting off the investors. The investors understand that their money will turn over quicker and much more and larger in a free country. So the return is very valuable to them. Right away we're besieged from overseas. From overseas. They're coming to us wanting to invest in our nation. We have everything to live for. And it's all by the law. U.S. law and international law. And it's continuing on. We have so many people supporting us constitutional and international lawyers that are helping us. We have engineers, we have experts in almost every field except medicine. We have people in health, though, in the health field. There are doctors already donating their time come when I come to America. Now we understand two things. One is that what freedom 
brings is you're free to be responsible. That's the beauty of freedom. Freedom to be responsible. Secondly, we understand the basic economic rule that those that control the energy control the economics. And guess what? In North and South Dakota, the finest winds in the contiguous 48 states of the United States of America, they have the best wind. We have the best wind. There's enough wind there, according to the experts, to power every city in the United States of America 24-7. That's what we have. And that's what we're going to start on. Windmills. Solar. The sun shines on the Lakota over 300 days of the year. Immense power. We have geothermal water heated to 170 degrees. Fish farming. All year, greenhouses. We have the basics of a very free country and free energy. We have even more to the, in our country to provide everyone of all the sacred colors of the human race with free energy if they'll just listen and understand what freedom means. And we can sell the rest to you people in America or you in Canada, wherever, because you all need it. So we want to partner up with the coal companies and other investors. But we have a future. And it's legally strong and lawfully strong. And it's people like yourselves that can make it happen. If you want us to lead the world again with everything that is free, free to be responsible, free to enjoy clean air, free from global warming, freedom from oppressive government, freedom from the Federal Reserve, which is private bankers, free from all the private bankers, free from the credit card companies. What are you waiting for? Let's support us. Let's let the world know that the Lakota, the Republic of Lakota, is the new kid on the block. And we, we Indian people, we deserve to sit at the table of the family of nations. We're the only color of the human race, the red Indians of the Americas, that do not have a seat at the family of nations. Let me be a free man. Free to travel. Free to stop. I hope to see you. Trade where I choose. Free to choose my own people. I apologize for the low sound quality of that clip, but I hope the message got through. Free to be responsible. That's the type of slogan which I think really could win someone the presidency in an unfettered, unbiased, unrigged election. Of course, the enthusiasm for the project has to be tempered by a little bit of realism. So let's come down from our lofty, idealistic expectations of freedom for all, freedom from the international bankers, freedom from the police state control grid, freedom from the phony war on terror, freedom from the global warming hoax, freedom for all. And let's get to some of the issues which are facing the newly born Republic of Lakota including this article from Bill Harlan from the Rapid City Journal on January 7, 2008. Two tribal leaders reject secession. Rosebud and Cheyenne River tribes don't support Russell Means' plan. Quote, the leaders of two Lakota tribes released a joint written statement Monday opposing a controversial plan by a small group of activists to renounce treaties and secede from the United States. Our grandfathers fought and died for these treaties. They are the backbone of Sioux Tribe's legal re relationship with the United States, Rosebud Sioux Tribe President Rodney Bordeaux said. They protect our remaining lands, our water, our resources, our rights, and our sovereignty. End quote. And of course, not only internal dissension, but also the problem of getting the newly formed republic recognized by the international community and by the United States government begins from this point. 
just how Russell Means might go about doing that within the letter of the law is suggested from an interview which he gave with FinalCall.com in January of this year. Final Call asked, what will happen to those who live in the area but do not want to leave the land or their property they have purchased? And Russell Means replied, the power we have is based on U.S. law. The negotiation tool that we will use with the city, county, and state governments is the power to put a lien on any and all real estate transactions in that five-state region. What that does is that it puts the burden of proof on the seller of the real estate. They have to prove that the lien is invalid. Well, based on the U.S. Constitution, we own the land. Therefore, if we choose to do that, the real estate market in those five-state areas will absolutely totally collapse. That is the power that we possess. They have a problem with their government because their government defrauded them. They bought property believing that the property was free and clear. It isn't. We own it. Now, obviously, this is a controversial plan, but almost immediately... Other signs of freedom began popping up in unexpected places. Just the day after that AFP report on the newly formed Republic of Lakota came this report from the National Post. Thursday, December 20th, 2007. Ipperwash Park returned to Ontario natives. Quote, the Ontario government has promised to hand over a provincial park where a native protester was fatally shot by police 12 years ago to the Indian band that has claimed the land for decades. But Minister of Aboriginal Affairs Michael Bryant said that Ipperwash Provincial Park will only be handed over to the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point after an undefined period of co-management by the band, the provincial government, and non-native residents of the area. Today is a very good day. It's a moment of really historic action, Mr. Bryant told a news conference Thursday. Today I'm announcing the transfer of Ipperwash Provincial Park lands back to the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point over a period of time. End quote. Again, for those in the truth and freedom movements, this is an exciting development and shows that indeed hope for a truly free and open society will always reside because ideas are bulletproof and they will outlast any individual. And here we find truth, freedom, and hope springing up again, this time in the much oppressed, repressed, and suppressed Native American and Native Canadian populations. And let's hope that this is not a spark that will burn out and fade away. And it might depend on our support in order to help it grow and prosper. I suggest you do your own research into the matter as always. And hopefully the Republic of Lakota website, which you can find in the documentation list from my website, will help begin that process of finding information and finding out what you can do to help support this freedom movement but I have a special announcement to make to my listeners. I'm sure all of you would like to hear more from Russell Means about this movement and what it might mean for the people of those five states and indeed the people of the U.S. and the world in terms of finding a true, truly free and prosperous society. Well, I have a very special treat. I have lined up for tomorrow, Monday, March 10th, 2008, an interview with Russell Means. I hope to have the audio of that interview up on the website by Tuesday, maybe Wednesday at the latest. I suggest you check back to the website this week, and hopefully you will find that interview with Russell Means, in which I will ask him more about his plans for the Republic of Lakota. It's indeed my first interview with a founder and leader of a newly formed nation, so I think it should be a good one. I certainly hope you can join me for that. Again, please look at www.corbettreport.com throughout the week for information about that interview. That's all for today. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the Corbett Report. Join me again next week for another episode.
a sense, America is dying from within because they forgot the instructions on how to live on Earth. <laughs> 